The Healing the City podcast is a ministry of the Village Church in Tucson, Arizona. If you enjoy the Healing the City podcast and wish to support it financially, you can go to villagersonline.com, click the We Give tab, and follow the instructions. Thank you for listening and enjoy the podcast. Welcome to Healing the City Podcast. My name is Eric Seepin, and across from me is my lovely and beautiful wife. And this is actually our third attempt at a podcast. <laughs> and I would like to, on this third attempt at a podcast, to preface something, because we're going to talk a lot about mental state. And uh, the second go-around, we forgot to say this, but the, nobody knows that, but we don't have any letters after our names, but we think about these things all the time, and we rely on a lot of different people like Dr. Larry Crabb and Dr. Dan Siegel and Dr. Um, Kurt Thompson and Dr. Schubner and what was the other? David Hanscom. And Dr. David Hanscom and Dr. Skeeter and we could go on and on about. So many doctors we listen to. Right. And we are going to look at, and we may talk about a study from Toronto on the, what's the title? Because you're best at saying it. Oh, oh, okay. Yeah, it's on the entropy model of uncertainty. Yeah, so we're mm-hmm. going to talk about that. It's a great article. It's a very great article, and you should read it. Maybe we can... Is it accessible to people? No. Probably not. not. Okay, it's not accessible to people. It's just accessible to special Sue. Um, anyway, probably in an academic library somewhere, right? Yeah. Okay. We can see if we can attach we a might. link or something. Yeah, maybe we can do that. So... What, where we want to start is I'm going to, if you could just talk like a lot of where you do your reading and your own life experience mm-hmm. and where you even try to help people from of late is out of the, the pain, unlearning your pain and unlearning your depression, the Dr. Schubner. And anxiety. And anxiety that Dr. Schubner talks a bit about. And just so like we can kind of work our way into all of this some of this thinking came out of Philippians chapter four, the meditation I did on um, that for the healing the city, really about the be anxious for nothing. Mm -hmm. And what does it, what does anxiety look like? What does it mean? What kind of emotion is it? And then I asked you to re-explain some stuff to me Mm -hmm. about rage and anger and healing from depression and anxiety. And you kind of sort of outlined some stuff for me that got me thinking and maybe down the road, I shouldn't have gone down. But <laughs> it got <laughs> very it, complicated. It did, and it got very confusing. <laughs> and I tried to make, I tried to teach the leaders this. And I'm, when I got up there to teach it, I just got kind of confused myself. So I'm going to let you start there. And then we're going to just kind of go into some different stuff. And hopefully this sort of random way will help you guys think about your depression, anxiety, and fear, et cetera. Yeah. So. And anger. Go ahead. So go for it. So I think the beginning of it is that recovering from depression and anxiety is typically very similar to recovering from chronic pain in the way that the brain is affected by these by these processes. And Dr. Schumanner has a uh, a lot of writing about that, and then also Dr. Hanscom kind of describes it very succinctly from time to time uh, that the the important keys to processing our emotions that allow us to overcome anxiety 
have to do with experiencing uh, rage that we have never expressed fully. So basically, we have to process our anger and probably other negative emotions would fall in there as well. Uh, Also, sadness or fear events that we've experienced. We have to feel the feelings and get them out in some capacity. And we also have to build signs of safety into our lives. So that process of releasing negative emotions by experiencing them and expressing them, and then also building in positive indicators causes a chemical shift in our bodies that moves us out of depressive or anxiety states into more healthy, positive states. Does that sum it up okay? Yeah, no, I think that I think it's good. I think, um, so could you talk a little bit more though about what, what these signs of safety are, how that, what that is? Because I mean, when you hear that, you're like, I'm not quite sure what that means. Yeah, I think. And what, also what it means to express it. Like, can you give some examples of like how you begin this process of expressing it? Yeah. So the, I mean, we've talked about the expression piece a lot on this podcast, sure I have. think. Of, it doesn't mean go yell at the person who you just realized that you're mad at. Right, right. It, it's kind of a sense that our brains don't want to feel extreme emotions and tend to shut down feelings of rage, especially if we're feeling helpless at the time to express them. So a lot of times childhood traumas will generate rage that we aren't allowed to express at the time as children. And so the child, our child self instead expresses, you know, either just shuts down emotionally or moves off into some other expressive state. But the anger is still there and our brain remembers it and is processing it for years, maybe. So it's those kinds of things, and perhaps we become intolerant of expressing any emotions along those lines over time, and so we just shut all of them down and experience other stuff instead. And so the process is looking for those pieces of, well, there's anger under this, and I just have never experienced it or expressed it. So some of it is is recognizing that it's even there, and some of it is expressing it not to the person specifically, but um, in various forms, it could be by writing about it, uh, in a, not in an intellectual way, but just like writing to get it out, right. uh, like writing in really emotional, angry ways, mm-hmm. writing down all the irrational thoughts and feelings that go with it. Uh, it could be um, yelling in a, you know, an enclosed space um, or that kind of thing where you, there's a safety to get it out without anybody else hearing it. Right. So I would say those are kind of the expressive pieces. And then the, the building of positive things seems like it is related to uh, reframing life as it currently stands and even past events. So looking back at past events and saying, okay, so this thing that I've always experienced as negative actually had some positive effects and being able to hold both of them and say, yeah, that was really hard for me. But also I developed compassion for other people as a result, or, you know, there was some positive way that it contributed to who I became today. 
So some of it is developing that kind of reframing. Some of it could be becoming aware of things I'm thankful for, becoming aware of the good aspects of my life, who I hope to become, what I want to do with my future, the possibility that I could do something different or something that I'm really interested in in my future. So I think those are probably some of the signs of safety are spending more time thinking about the good aspects of life and what is already in place that I really do enjoy and how I really am safe and not just letting our brains think about the negative stuff all the time, but building in the positive pieces as well. Right. I I like that. No, that's, that's really cool. And I think as I was listening to you talk, one of the things I was thinking is, okay, so depression and anxiety could you consider you could consider them in a sense when you process them as one is on one side of the chart and the other is on the other side and i think you know they they um there's hyper and hypo arousal and those are mm-hmm. those two things fall on either end um but what i i think is kind of something we have to process is what you're saying is that there's there's this anger that hasn't been dealt with mm-hmm. and that anger um, unexpressed can lead to anxiety yeah, or depression. Sure. And I think, you know, so when I went to do this presentation, that's what was predominantly in my brain as I was trying to work in all the different things that I had in my brain and trying to wrestle that out and it, it didn't work out as well. But, um, I think, you know, and if you listen to any village podcast, one of the things we talk a lot about when we're talking about these things is that our nervous systems are linked together. Mm-hmm. So if your nervous system is in some form of arousal, like hyper arousal, mm-hmm. um, then, or in hypos, like either depressed or anxious, like it affects me Yeah, and mine gets worked up. And if I can't tolerate yours, then we end up ha- really struggling to communicate well with one another. Yeah. And really to function in healthy relationships. So what we continue to do is is to damage one another in a sense. Mm-hmm. And and so I think one of the pictures I had in my mind was um, if we were able to experience our fear, if we were able to experience our anger and our sadness and some of these things that are negative emotions, and you could maybe even throw in our happiness and our joy, if we were able to experience those yeah which are arousal, like they're emotionally arousing kinds of things. You're right. And if, and they could be dangerous to some, to some of us. Yes. If we've had experiences where it wasn't safe to be happy or we would be punished for expressing joy or excitement, say, yes, then we may not be tolerant to experiencing joy. Right. Mm -hmm. And so, and so some of it is our ability. So, you know, people call this from Dan Siegel, the window of tolerance. But one of the things I think about when I think about this is like, for instance, fear. Fear is something that protects us, right? Yeah. Um, even when, when like we use, like in Luke chapter one, verse 30, when the angel appears to Mary to tell her that she's going to be the mother of, of God, mother of Messiah, he says, don't be afraid, which literally means don't run away. Well, fear mm-hmm. is a dangerous thing. An angel, huge, mm-hmm. 
shows up, she's afraid. The response to that is to run away. That's a good thing. And a lot of times, because our fear, when it gets aroused, it means that something terrible has happened to us, like when, it, when we can't tolerate it from our past. Um, and part of, part of moving towards something healthy is being able to befriend that fear, for instance, mm. to like know that it was good for us. Yeah. Right? Because when we're able to do that and to see it as something good, then we're able to tolerate it. Mm-hmm. Right? Um, I, so I, I think those are kind of where, where we're looking at and how to deal with stuff and how to think about things. Yeah, I think that fits with the anger piece, too. If we start discovering repressed anger Mm -hmm. in our lives and expressing it, then we become more tolerant to anger as well, to um, the experience of it, to feeling it flare up inside of us and not having to shut it down or say, no, I'm a good person. I don't feel angry ever. Right. You know, if we have some value statement attached to that emotion, um, yeah, we develop a little bit more space to look at it, to experience it, to recognize what it's doing for us. Right and what it requires of us. Right. And I, I think one of the things, like, so if we befriend our fear, one of the things, and, and befriend our anger, anger is usually, underneath it is hurt, but there's also all, a lot of longing and desire. Mm-hmm. And when we have the capacity to tolerate our anger, we can then be able to engage um, what we actually long for, to yeah. identify our longings. Because a lot of times they're masked under the anger, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think the same is with sadness. Uh, I, I think, you know, in the Beatitudes where it says that the those who mourn will be comforted, that's those who express their sadness outwardly. What's inside is expressed outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's... Uh, so when I was thinking about all these things, you can't do this in a vacuum. Is what I, I, I think, and this is a village thing, I mean, it's... Everything has to happen in community. I can't really befriend my fear without you helping me. Right. I can't befriend my anger. I can't express my sadness and be comforted. I, I can't express my joy and be uh, in delight in something without somebody there to do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, and I think one of the things that's really important for us to understand is that the way God reveals himself in, in relationally a lot of times is through God's people which usually helps us if it's healthy to attach to God, to, to understand him, to experience him. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's really important because I can't do all this on my own. And also the negative effects, as we were saying, is when we're both in, in hyper arousal, like we're not able to relate. We're both either frozen or we want to run away. Like we things have yeah. gone offline. We've gone into autopilot right. mode. Based on some other agenda, yes, of our brain or right. body, our mm-hmm. brain or body. Like it's so when we, I think best way to think of a window of tolerance is that means everything's online. My body, my rational brain, my heart, like the all the my emotions are all lined like they're they're lined up. They're mm-hmm. online. They're communicating. They're with communicating, each other. and yeah. there's kind of a to- we can tolerate this, and then and, and make real, decisions about make it. Make clear mm-hmm. decisions and have plans of action, and I, I think that's that's really important. Um. So one of the things in all of this that I, I wanted to talk maybe to you about and then have you respond and, and kind of add stuff to is it's not something we've talked a lot about on the podcast, but that is about attachment. And the reason I don't talk about attachment a lot of times uh, and, and its impact on who we are, so like attachment to our parents, attachment to one another, mm-hmm. um, is that it's kind of complex. Like yeah. 
Secure, there are two kinds of attachment, secure and insecure. Secure attachment is relatively simple to talk about. Insecure attachment, very difficult and has lots of different categories and different mm -hmm. things and, and, you know, but um, I think just being able to have those two categories that you can either be attached to someone in a secure way or an insecure way and that will affect your capacity to deal with your anxiety and your depression to be able to befriend your fear and anger and express your sadness like your attachment determines those things and um, I was introduced just a couple weeks ago in listening to a podcast uh, Mars Hill like the popular one or whatever is they had a, psych a psychiatrist no psychologist anyway she she used this phrase uh we repeat what we do not repair mm -hmm. and she couldn't remember where she got this quote from so i went but she uses it all the time in her practice so i decided to dive deep into that figure it out i think this lady wrote a novel mary beth and she spells her name k-e-a-n-e -E. how would you pronounce that keen probably keen mm -hmm. so mary beth keen she wrote a, a story about two neighbors, I guess, and everything kind of goes bad, but it's all about sexual abuse and all this. It's just this dark underworld. But apparently she's the one who coined that phrase, I think. But it doesn't matter. Um, it's really true when it comes to attachment. And I, it's it helped. this is why I feel like I can talk about it, is secure attachment is where there is repair. Mm -hmm. And insecure attachment is where there isn't repair mm -hmm. or the hope of repair. So a secure attachment means that there, when there's brokenness in the relationship, when one person has hurt the other, there's going to be forgiveness and repentance, or I hope that that can happen. Insecure attachment, there's not any repair, right? Yeah. So ab abuse, no, no repair, mm -hmm. right? Um, neglect, no repair. Right. And I, so repair is really key to your attachment to somebody. And I think even in just normal relationships yes if something gets awkward in a relationship with somebody or there's a hurt that nobody goes back to address then there can be a rupture in relationship that just doesn't get repaired right and that's like just everyday life with yes. pretty healthy people yes right well and i would argue for us to really have large windows of tolerance and have everything online we have to be in communities and families that are committed to repair mm-hmm and committed to the building of secure attachment. Um, and that happens through your willingness to confess how you've wounded someone and repent, yeah. move away from that. And also, I think it's attached to forgiveness. So when there's a culture of forgiveness mm -hmm. and repentance, then you have deeper and deeper attachment. When you have deeper, deeper attachment, you have larger windows of tolerance. Yeah. And when you have a larger window of tolerance, you can handle your initial primary emotions mm -hmm. and they don't get subverted by secondary emotions like anxiety, shame, and rage. They don't just get skipped over and and you're able to deal with them in really healthy ways. And then you don't end up anxious or depressed. Mm -hmm. But I think what's fascinating about all of this is that insecure attachment, when you have that or you're practicing that, that creates room for joy it creates room for delight. Insecure attachment? I mean, secure, excuse me, excuse me, excuse me. Secure attachment creates room for delight mm -mm. because it creates room for healthy relationship. 
when you don't have any sense that things can be repaired or there's just consistent damage within the relationship, which is a dysfunctional relationship, you do not delight or have joy in a person. Mm-hmm. When you have delight and joy in a person, and that's a repeated process, you create neural pathways that offset anxiety. Mm-hmm. So, and and in, in particular, they offset shame. And so they allow you um, to actually live a healthy life that isn't isn't in, um, invaded by anxiety and depression. And I would say that goes along with the signals of safety piece. Yeah. That if the relationships that you're in are developing into these places where you can just let loose and experience joy. Right. And delight, happiness, laughter, fun. Right. With somebody else, then that is a buffer against the negative pieces. Right. It provides a space of life and hope yeah. for something good. Yeah. So one of the things I, I was curious, and I know we haven't chatted about this, so you can just say, hey, I don't know if I can talk about that. But I think you've done a lot of reading and thinking about forgiveness and its impact. Mm-hmm. And I think forgiveness is key to a secure attachment because insecure attachment in all, there's no forgive, like the forgiveness is not part of the nature of a relationship. Mm-hmm. And I'm just wondering, can you talk just a little bit about the effects of forgiveness on someone? Like what happens to you when you forgive someone? Wow. Yeah, I think there's well, there's just a lot of research out there on people going through forgiveness processes that results in improved relationships with their loved ones, with the people that they're actually in relationship with, because for unforgiveness has a tendency to block us off from what's present around us. Mm-hmm. And so there's kind of a, a development of bitterness that creates blockades in what could be really good stuff happening in our life right now. And so forgiveness actually clears the way to experience what's present now with the people here, whether it's forgiveness of someone that we're still in relationship with or somebody that hurt us 30 years ago, it doesn't matter. It would have a similar effect. It also has really great health benefits. Um, I can't. Can't, yeah. I can't go into them at all. <laughs> Off the top of your head. Yes. But I think I think a piece of the forgiveness process that I was really surprised by was that it often has to do with dropping a demand yes. on another person. Yes. You know, we think of forgiveness, we have a tendency to think of forgiveness as, you know, I'm just, I'm going to feel this way or I'm going to feel this way instead of you know, like trying to change the way we feel about somebody or just make a choice and be like, "Mm, I don't hold this against them any longer. I don't know that that stuff works all that well, but the idea of recognizing a demand on another person and saying this thing that I was demanding is clearly not something I can have. And I'm going to choose to allow it to be a disappointed longing. Like Mm -hmm. it's something that, uh, that I really desired and it didn't happen there. And I'm going to let go of the demand. And also recognize that the things I long for may may happen with this person or they might be happening somewhere else in my life. And to kind of look, step back a little bit and look at the bigger picture of what we long for and where it's happening 
and not letting it all be hinged on that one event right. or that one person. Even. Right, right. I, I think that as you were talking, I was thinking, oh, you know, we, we say a lot of times, well, you got to sit in this. Mm-hmm. And people are like, well, how, what does that mean? And and a lot of it has to do with what you're talking about. Like a good relationship is a place where you can actually sit in a disappointment. But you can't sit in disappointment if you aren't able to tolerate it. Mm, right. And I yeah. think that makes it so part of the practice of stretching things is once that you once you have come grounded yourself and we can talk a little bit about that the ability to just look at okay well this is really disappointing mm-hmm. this is what i was demanding this mm-hmm. for this is what i'm longing for i really and this you introduced this to me while well, back when you were talking about this but that to look at some other place where mm-hmm. it might be happening because mm-hmm. a lot of times we get blinders on and say yeah. oh like this person hurt me and they're the only person that pro- can provide this for me right and why aren't they providing it for me? When it's like, oh, it actually, they touch a longing and a desire yeah. and, and they hurt me and I need to forgive them for that. But actually this desire over here, a lot of times this desire is being met in Jesus or this desire is being met in another space relationally. Right. Or maybe God has provided it for you somewhere. Right. And you're not even looking at God anymore because right. you're so obsessed with that person yeah. and what they've done. Yeah. No, that's, that's. And I think, so those ideas are a drastic nutshelling of Fred Luskin's book called Forgive for Good. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Which is from a secular perspective where he goes out and trains people to forgive and sees incredible results in groups of people who've been through really traumatic war-torn situations with family members killed and stuff like that. So it was really interesting to me to see the results he was having in that kind of context. And I feel like we have something even richer because we have that idea we have all of those pieces available to us but then we also have this example of the way that god has forgiven us yeah and god pouring out his love his compassion into our hearts so that we can express those to the people around us extend them to the people around us as well which is a big deal yeah no i I think you're right um just to, to walk us back a little bit just to the attachment for a moment because I one of the things another thing that you actually introduced um, <laughs> and we got this from an interview of the the, uh, the minister of what was it in Australia the uh, he has a weird job it's like positive something or I don't know, encouraging the community. I don't know. Yeah, now, now that you said that, yeah. I can't remember what it is, but I think it was Officer of po- Positivity or something, yeah, something like that. Something like that. And he's on this interview with uh, another guy who's a surgeon, right? It was David Hanscom. It was David Hanscom. Yeah. Okay. And uh, one of the things that he, I guess, encourages people to do is to ask the question, you know, what was the best thing in your day or what was the best thing in your week? Mm-hmm. And to really, I to observe people as they try to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Um, and his point was that a lot of times we have a useless conversation, which is, how are you doing? Um, fine. Or not bad. Not bad. Or So the double, it's either a negative or a double negative. Or m- neutral. Neutral, yeah. right. And and since and it's just kind of a wasted conversation because you don't get to know anything about the person. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I've been thinking about this uh, because uh, 
I like I think that God oh I know that God delights in us mm-hmm. and he invites us to delight in one another and that the only like I said earlier the only way for that to truly express itself is in a secure space like you don't have enough time because negative things don't take your brain very long to, mm-hmm. to grab hold of and and to really sink them into your body and your heart and your soul but it takes a little bit longer for positive good rich things so asking that question sets you up for an enjoyment of someone else's experience and mm-hmm. them feeling enjoyed mm-hmm. and i think that is really important um, because it's what we all long for i was thinking about this i, I got some of these ideas i think it's out of chapter four of uh Kirk Thompson's book on shame, but he, where he talks about joy, but and he talks a lot about how we want people to tell us not just, Hey, that was a great sermon or Hey, that, you know, great pass, you know, whatever, you know, good, good goal kid that you shot. Like, I see the work that you did to get to this place. Mm. I see you. And like, I tell you, and I enjoy that. Yeah. That's what we all long for, you know? And, I was thinking about this as my my dad's 80th birthday is happening, you know, and this weekend, and I'm thinking I want to say something, and you know, I think the thing that my dad longs for, and I was realizing I long for, and like all of us do, is to be enjoyed, mm-hmm. to have out the thing that we offered be enjoyed, mm-hmm. and to say, oh, I see the effort you put forward to get to this place, to do these things, to be. And so asking a person the question, you know, what was the best thing in your day? is just the beginning of that mm-hmm. because it's like an invitation is like, I'd like to enjoy you. Yeah. Like I'd like to, I'd like to enjoy you. And a lot of times, you know, at the village, we spend a lot of time saying, Hey, you need to be able to learn to listen mm-hmm. because there's a lot of hurt and pain going on in people's lives. Yeah. And so you need to be able to hear that and not just brush over it. So, yeah. but I think, and and that's good because it says you're important, but it doesn't necessarily say I enjoy you. Yeah. And I think there's room for how are you, mm-hmm. especially when you're in a context where people will answer it honestly. Yeah. But I think it does have a tendency to set us up for thinking about the negative things that are happening. Like, how am I? Well, am I really great or am I kind of not so great? And my tendency is to to head towards the negative in response to that question yeah. typically. Yeah. And um, if I'm going to answer it honestly, right, that's right. probably where I'm going to go. And so it's been, so I feel like they're both valuable because there may be negative stuff that's hard that would be good to talk about. And yet what I've found in asking people the question about their favorite moment or what was really good today has been uh, to watch people's faces light up when they remember the thing that yeah. they just so enjoyed and then explain it to me and then tell me the good stuff around it. And, oh, and there was this other thing and there was this other thing. And I feel like it's part of helping each other enjoy our own lives. Because when people ask me that question and I recognize the thing that I enjoyed the most that day or two weeks ago, whatever it is, you know, I'm starting to track the things that I enjoyed the most and re-enjoy them and remember them where I maybe wouldn't have otherwise yeah. nurtured space for that positivity or the even just the cherishing of the good in yeah, my life. Definitely. Mm-hmm. I think that's... I think and that's, now I'm cherishing the good in other people's lives yeah. too. Yeah. 
which is really fun. Yeah, it really is fun. That's really cool. I I I, I love talking about all these things because it gets me excited about what God can do, especially when I think mm-hmm. about even just to go the secure attachment part. It just that's what the goal is. Like Jesus is inviting us to be in a secure attachment to him mm-hmm. because he does delight in us. He does invite our repentance and our confession and he forgives us. Yeah. And he says, you know, what you've done is irrelevant because you're my child and I died for you. You're my brother. I died for you. You're my sister. And I think that's a beautiful and powerful thing that we're invited into, but also we're invited to strive towards for in, in engagement with one another to offer those things. Yeah. I think to go all the way back to the beginning, though, for just one second to leave people with some stuff that's really practical and is that I I don't think people should go past this idea that their depression, which is a is is usually a shutting down Mm -hmm. of or their anxiety and shame, um, which is a heightened kind of experience Mm -hmm. chemically like that those things are signals that something is wrong, but that it most likely has to do with anger that's not expressed Mm -hmm. in multiple aspects of their life. Mm -hmm. And I just want to give, I won't, I will make this very general, but I'll give an example of how that works in my life. So you can see that is that I had experienced recently where someone said something to me that was relatively confrontational and I felt the fear, right? Mm-hmm. There was a fear experience because I felt like I was like what felt certain and safe was no longer certain and safe, mm-hmm. right? That's what my brain was telling me. My yeah. emotions were telling me the chemicals and everything. This is not. This is not safe. And then the conversation happened a little bit, and then I walked away from it, and I was still elevated and mm-hmm. I'm very anxious mm-hmm. right and so I'm rehearsing the conversation and I'm, I'm just doing like I, I can't get myself to think straight or to think about anything else yeah and so I kind of thought about okay so let's just go back to my comment of if I'm anxious then I might be angry about something mm-hmm. and I was mm-hmm. yes fear was a, a reaction but I, my anger when I started thinking about it, it was, and that affected the fear because it was a relational fear that I experienced was mm-hmm. I had a demand on this person or a demand on all people, basically, mm-hmm. do not put me in this position. You will not put me in this position. Right. So that, that anxiety was at some level what I would, was mixed with like kind of a rage. Like I wanted to strike back, like, but the anxiety, but made me stop and think, oh, okay. Yeah. Like, I am not friends with the fear here. I've bypassed that really quickly. I'm not friends with the anger. Right. I bypassed that. to It's it's rage. And, you know, it was in front of a couple people, so I was then maybe a little embarrassed. There's a lot mm-hmm. of stuff happening in that moment. So I think what's really key in just all of this is if I want then a, a, a healthy attachment to the person that this conversation was in, mm-hmm. then there has to be some kind of repentance. Mm-hmm. And there has to be some kind of forgiveness. There has to be repair or a hope of repair. Yeah. Or what will happen between me and this person will just grow further and further apart. And every time I think about them, I will get elevated and have conversation internally in my head with them. And then a narrative gets bigger and bigger and bigger 
And then going back to the forgiveness idea, you become preoccupied with them to the exclusion of the people that you want to enjoy around you. Yes. To the people closest to you, you become less accessible because your brain is wrapped up in this thing. Yeah. So, yeah. so I, I would like to say that one of the ways that you extend your window of tolerance, so like to befriend fear and all those kinds of things, is to re is, is you do have to do some grounding things, right? Before we get to that, yes, can yes, I yes. go, go back it. to the, what yeah. you were just saying? I think what's helpful for me about the idea that anger may be the root of my anxiety is that my tendency is to feel anxious and then start looking for stuff. Yes. So especially in moments where it seems vague and it's not a direct result of something that just happened, like I wake up and I'm feeling vaguely anxious or, you know, mm-hmm. whatever. At some point in the day, I just feel like, wow, I've been off all day. And then I start looking for things and I think, well, maybe it's this thing. Maybe I'm afraid of what's happening tomorrow. Maybe, you know, I start inventing things that I'm anxious about where looking for the anger would, I would never find it because I'm looking for things I'm afraid of, not things that have happened previously that I'm feeling angry about or even things that are happening now. Like maybe I have a demand that I don't have to do what I'm doing at this moment and I'm angry, but it's coming out as anxiety. So kind of looking for the demands that I'm holding or the anger that I have, because I think demands have a tendency to cause anger. Yes. Well, I think they're, it basically is there's hurt and the world's not working the way you want it to. Yeah. So not doing that means I'm never going to find the cause of it. Right. So actually thinking, okay, it's not about all these things that I think it's about. And then looking for that specific root yeah. is a big deal. I think to so. Me. I think I think you're right, and I think it helps you, um, stretch like bring everything back online. Mm. Because when you're feeling vaguely anxious, that means every, things have gone offline, mm-hmm. right? Your body is responding. Yeah. Your mind's saying, "Well, everything seems fine," but your body's saying, "Nothing's fine." Mm-hmm. And so you're like, "Oh, things are offline. I need to figure out how to get them back online so that everything is in cooperation and I can handle what's going on." Yeah. So you were talking about grounding. Well, I just think it's important. To know that uh, if you experienced a lot of trauma in your life, then your ability to tolerate and befriend fear and anger and sadness and and even positive emotions like joy and happiness are going to be difficult. Um, And so it's really important for you to be aware of that. Mm -hmm. So if you're feeling them, maybe the first reaction is not to try to begin to think, well, I wonder why I'm angry. Mm-hmm. Your first reaction is to try to get your body to calm down. And there are tons of ways to do this. And, and you know, there are lots of funny ones. Mm-hmm. Like, if you're really anxious, drink some water through a straw. That's <laughs> one that's been shown to help you ground, ground, mm-hmm. ground yourself. A lot of, you know, I've talked about, I don't know if it's on this podcast or in other meetings about, you know, the five senses grounding. You know, five things you see, four things you smell, three things you can taste, you know, hear, hear mm-hmm. you know, see, whatever. Those things, how many ever senses there are? <laughs> I, I never, just take some senses and go through them, you know, eyes, ears, nose, you know. Yeah, and I'm getting a phone call, but I I'll think, turn that off. I think the cold shower is an interesting idea or exercising really yes. hard, like doing things that change your body temperature. Yes, so, I mean, one of the famous ones in dialectic therapy is just go take a cold shower and then work out really hard. And then do some breathing exercises, and you'll change your nervous system, and mm-hmm. you'll be able, you know, kind of a reboot. Yes, um, 
So I think being able to do that before you begin to process with your brain what might you might be experiencing um, or how to work through your anger or fear, that kind of thing. So anyway, I know this is a lot of information and this was all over the place, but this is just some of the stuff that's been on my mind and stuff that Sue and I talk about all the time. And we want to let you in on a little bit of it. Hopefully it produces a bunch of questions mm-hmm. and uh, we can point you towards people uh, to listen to and read and all that kind of good stuff. And hopefully we will provide copious notes with the show. Yeah, we'll, we'll to def- reference the many things that we we'll try to we'll try rambled to, about. Well, we'll try to make. I'll try to put at least five links to different places you can do more research on stuff. Especially the uh, the interview with the guy from Australia, <laughs> whose name we haven't said yet yeah, because we don't remember. We don't what remember it him. Is. But anyway, <laughs> we'll give him his credit in the show notes. So. Um, yeah, thanks, Sue, for doing this. I know these are, so you know, you takes you a few minutes to jump in with me. Yeah, I have to regulate my <laughs> you nervous system. you got to regulate system. your nervous system. Yep. <laughs> Mics are not your friend, necessarily, mm-hmm. unless you're singing. But, uh, all right, well, that was Healing the City. If you have any questions and you want to email them, you can email them to healingthecity at gmail.com. Thanks, guys. You've been listening to Healing the City Podcast with Susan Seepin and Eric Seepin. You can follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook.